0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, number 150, for April 29th, 2008. <laughs> Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. We're at show 150, John. That's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable it really is actually i uh, i don't believe it i i mean that uh so we have all kinds of stuff to go through but interestingly enough uh in in very different ways uh you and i both had jury duty today is that is that right john you had it today well kind of i i just finished about uh, 2 hours ago i just finished recording this week's episode of mac jury with chuck Joyner and uh uh, he's, he's the host, of course, and, and uh, he brings together a group of Mac people uh, every week or so to talk about various issues. And it's just sort of a, you know, it's a jury. It's just pull them together, talk about it, and move on. So it was cool. Ah, ah, so that was my that jury duty.
1: Yeah. No, mine was the uh, local superior court. Please show up at 830 in the morning, call in the night before, called in. I was still on the list, showed up, got to watch a few videos judge talked to us she was kind of entertaining um and sat there for many hours and eventually uh and i noticed i wasn't being called now you got to fill out a form beforehand i don't know if what i put down on the form you know it's confidential juror questionnaire as far as you know your occupation your age uh education and any you know anything else you want to put down there no i'm not going to make any wisecrack (laughs) comments it was truthful because it says if any of this information that you know you're so tempted to put you know like Cross out my name and put Wiley Coyote and put Super Genius as the uh, <laughs> profession. I just remember that one line: Wiley Coyote, Super Genius, from the classic cartoons. But yeah, no, nah, I don't think they have a sense of humor when it comes to that. Probably so, not. Yeah. Probably. Hey, so this is the second time that I've shown up, sat around for several hours, not even talked to a judge or a lawyer. Which yeah. I guess a lot of the people that—that's what they're doing—is—is is questioning you for service, but. I've never ever got to, to that point of view.
0: Uh, no. Uh, the only time I've done jury duty was in Austin, uh, Texas, where you get to pick whether you want to be on one day week long or month long trials. And at the time hmm. I, I chose, yeah, I chose a one day and really that, that just was traffic court. And we sat there while people in the other room were, uh, you know, arguing their cases and, and really they just used us as, as their muscle. They said, look, If you want to argue this, if you don't want to plead guilty or plead this out, we've got a jury right there, right in that room there. We're going to we'll waltz them in here and we'll hear your case right now. You ready to go? And uh, nobody had the guts to do it. So, Mm. All right. So we have uh, we have all kinds of stuff to go through. We have. uh, Well, let's start with Chris. Chris writes in. uh, I have a question, which is good because that's uh, that's exactly what we're here for. I was recently helping a friend of mine on her PC running Vista. We were able to have uh, I'm going to have to paraphrase here. Uh, we were able to have a customizable audible audio clip play whenever she logged into her account. I thought it was a cool feature, and I was a little hurt that I could not find a way to do this on my MacBook. I know and don't want to change the startup chime, but the login should be up for, gra- for grabs. Uh, do you guys know of any way of doing this? Uh, now, I, John, I know you have an answer here, and I'm actually really curious to hear what it is. My my gut would say you uh, create a standalone sound file and put it in as a login item. Does uh, am I am I even close on this? You are close,
1: but it depends on what application, uh, how you go about it. I'll, I'll put oh, it that way. So, that's right, because so that would launch that- an
0: app. That's right. Oh yeah.
1: Okay. Now, now you see, and that's why I put in the, my note to you, this is more complicated than you think. Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, I couldn't find any references on, on the global brain that is the internet, but I seem to recall in OS9 that if you took a file called startup sound and put it in the system folder or somewhere, it would
0: play it. Do you recall that? I do. Yeah, that's right. Now, Uh, yeah it wasn't the startup chime but it was a a sound that would play very early on when when extensions were loading in mac os 9
1: yes okay so so i did remember that correctly now i gotta say in this one rare situation (laughs) um windows does have the advantage here and that windows can do startup sounds it can do shutdown sounds actually it can do almost too many sounds (laughs) yeah oh
0: right yeah sure yeah
1: um but it can do it but i'm i'm looking around i'm how do I solve this problem? So, yeah, let me go to, you know, the system preferences. Let me look at sound, you know, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm just describing my approach here just right, for right, yeah. educational value. But um, so I do that. And, you know, there's nothing in the sound control panel. There's sound effects, but it doesn't really there's nothing about what, when they will play. And I'm like, huh. Well, yeah, let me try to do something clever, as Dave suggested. So I started zooming into this area, too. I went to my account and you have um, login items. Now, they can be applications, and most of the, the time they are. If you look what's in there, it's mostly, you know, for applications that typically start up and, and you don't even really see them or know they're there. Right. But you can put other things there, like a document. And, hey, a sound file is a document, but here's, here's the rub, is that you've got to get the right applications. So one thing is, I'm like, oh, well, you know, let, let me take a sound file that's associated with iTunes. That sounds like a sensible program to play a sound file. Well, at least on my system what happened is when it started up iTunes, it played that sound file, but it continued to play every other sound right. in <laughs> right. my music library. That's not really what I was shooting for. You know, I, tried, I had another sound file that was associated with um, uh, Audacity, and that didn't work either. It just kind of started, and it was there, and it, you know, there was nobody there to start it. And then I'm like, uh, how about a scripting language? Uh. I, I poked around an automator. I really couldn't find any good actions to play a sound file just that a cursory look but you know iTunes didn't really seem to have anything and then I thought well maybe Apple script and then I came across a nice little utility called Play Sound. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see David Blanch Microcosm Software and this pretty much that's all it does in life is it yeah. plays a sound it's a little application and it has two purposes so I kind of accidentally found a good way to do this or, or to solve the problem so Place sound you drag a sound file on top of it and it plays it but it's also scriptable uh-huh. so you can create an apple script, but the thing is you don't need to create an apple script though you'd like to but i'm just advertising the selling point of this because the icon even shows a little you know apple script scroll basically what you do is you take the sound file that you want to play you associate it you say open with i think in the uh, uh you know the get info um And you make play sound the application, open the sound file instead of whatever is assigned to, which we're actually going to touch on that a little later. Uh,
0: That makes good sense. Yeah.
1: And if you associate the sound file in question with um, with play sound and then you put it in the login items, um, when the time comes, it'll play the startup sound. And that's how you solve it. But, you know, it just had me going on this crazy journey because I thought it can't be this hard. And, you know, I would say it's relatively hard. Yeah. It, you do it with the tools at your disposal in, in the OS, which is weird because even if you highlight a sound and, and you do get info on it, in the preview, it has the ability to play it. But I didn't see anything in any contextual menu that would say, you know, play it startup or some of the things that a lot of times you'll see happen yeah. in Windows. They get kind of crazy with the contextual menu sometimes. Yeah, but, I wonder. So, so I was surprised that there wasn't a more straightforward way to do this without getting a third party program.
0: Yeah, I think. Gosh, I wonder if there's a way to do it from the command line, um, it, because, like, like you said, I mean, the Finder, especially with Quick Look now in uh, in Leopard, but certainly even in Tiger, you were able to just play a sound uh, right there. So, yeah, there's I, there's. I wonder if there's a way to if there's a way from the command line to do it, and then obviously, if there is, then you can you know script that one of a one of a dozen ways. Yeah. Moves, so.
1: I looked around. I mean, there are, are some command line utilities that will play sounds. I didn't find any bundled, or at least, you know, in my path when I tried to type them in. I think one is called play, and right. there are a few others. I thought about that, too, and get something like um, Lingon or some other tool. Right. Um, I think that does that sort of thing to, you know, create yeah. a, a startup script. So, okay. the good news is there is a way to do it, but, and we will link to the, the program here, but it, it does its job perfectly and, and is well-suited for this task.
0: Awesome. Okay, uh, all right, let's move on to John, not not you, uh, but uh, John, listener John.
2: Hello, guys, this is John from the UK. Uh, I'm an avid listener to your show, and uh, hopefully you can help me with this very annoying problem that I seem to have uh, come across with my Mac. I have this problem with mail, where when I try to do a search over any of my mailboxes, It allows me to search uh, in the from field, the to field and the subject field, but I cannot search anymore using the entire message. This happened a couple of weeks ago and I've tried everything I can find to uh, restore this facility. I'm assuming it's something to do with the Spotlight Index. So I ran Onyx and uh, rebuilt the Spotlight Index, uh, rebuilt the Mail Envelope Index, whatever that is, um, repaired permissions and everything else I could think of within that application. Uh, I've tried every possible thing I can think of in order to try and uh, get this back, but still I can't search through the entire message and it's driving me crazy. I have quite a lot of mail in there uh, and... Being able to find something by just typing in and searching through the entire message uh, makes life an awful lot easier than trying to uh, work out who it's from or even the subject line. I'm currently running Leopard 10.5.2. I've run all the updates. I've patched everything I could possibly patch. Uh, I've done everything. If you guys can help me, it would be much appreciated. You can email me. Uh, we'll talk about it here. Um, okay. Okay. I- I think the answer is
0: fairly simple. You you've done all the right things, John. You, you know, it it is spotlight related. Uh, We've assumed that, you know, maybe there's a damaged spotlight database. So you've gone and rebuilt that. But I believe so. There's there's two types of searches that mail does. One is the contents of a message and then everything else. Everything else is handled internally to mail and not related to spotlight at all, so if you 're searching from to subject, and then there's actually ways of, of adding other fields there too uh, that doesn't uh, that you know that has nothing to do with spotlight so the the issue is definitely spotlight related if the only thing you can't search is entire message, My guess is that you have mail messages disabled in your spotlight searches. Uh, either that or somehow you've excluded the uh, mail store folder from your uh, Spotlight indexing. But if you go into Spotlight and you go to the uh, the first tab, uh, sorry, if you go to system preferences and go to Spotlight, the first tab there is search results. And mail messages is the, uh, the, the fifth one down, or at least it is for me. I guess you can set the order any way you like. But uh, mail messages, make sure that's checked. And then that should solve this problem, uh, John. Do you have? I, I don't. I think you don't use mail, John. So you you may not have firsthand knowledge of this. But uh, anything that I I missed on this one? No, I'd I'd like to use mail. I
1: actually did try when I was on vacation one night, kind of bored, and and the the migration didn't go quite as expected. Um, I'll give it another try, though. But but it it did. Yeah, getting stuff over from Eudora is. Uh, <clears throat> the thing I want to be sure I get right, yeah, because that's where everything is right now.
0: I did that once. I migrated from Eudora to Mail once, um, and then from Mail to Mailsmith, and then Mailsmith back to Mail. Um, and the the only problem I had with Eudora was sent items. There there was something with the timestamp on sent items, and then uh, kind of uh, system wide or mail store wide, there was an issue with uh, marking things as read and unread that that just did not. Uh, transfer. but other than that, Eudora stores stuff in mbox format, so it's pretty straightforward, and uh, and Mail seems to pull it in okay. So,
1: yeah, I mean, the only thing mdutil, but but it sounds like I mean that's essentially what what the other utilities are running, as far as I know. So, yep. mdutil is the the utility that manipulates or can do do things with the uh, Spotlight index. So, yep. I mean, you may want to manually run. MDUtil just to make sure it's actually being done right and see if there's any error messages or anything. But uh,
0: Yeah, mm. yeah. All right, uh, we have an interesting question from Julian. Uh, he, he writes, When I'm playing X-Plane version 9, well, which he loves and of course I love too, uh, I notice that it uses lots of graphics power. I'm on a 2.4 gigahertz aluminum iMac with 4 gigs of RAM. My CPU and net memory are never filled up when playing X-Plane. But still, when I play with decent graphics, it lags on me. Uh, so in my opinion, the only limiting factor is my graphics card, which has 256 megabytes of RAM. So My question is, how can I know how much of my graphics card are different apps using? In Activity Monitor, I can see the usage stats of my CPU and memory, but not my graphics card. Is there any way I can find this out? Uh, and of course, my uh, solution here was to put it to all of you, the the listeners, because I had no idea how to do this. But uh, but John beat you all to the punch, I think, or at least started us down this path.
1: And and I didn't. I I was actually getting a bit aggravated too because I I know that that's not a figure that is easily available through the OS. I mean, you can find the total VRAM that you have through the uh, system info. But I don't think it shows you much else beyond how much the card reports that it has. So I thought, oh, somebody's had to to have solved this problem. And they did. Um, I found a little utility. We'll uh, link to the source here. Um, Found it on Mac Update. Uh, The name's not too flashy, but it (laughs) gets the point across. It's called ATI NVIDIA Get VRAM. And for the supported cards, and I guess that that's the only thing with this. So I have two machines here. I have a G5 with a ATI card, and I have my MacBook with a Nvidia. And this utility worked with both of them, and it's uh, you know pretty much straightforward. It shows you the card that it, it sees. So like on the on, on my G5 here, it says AT, ATI Radeon 9600, 9700. That series, free VRAM, 26 megabytes. Yeah, if I recall, this machine doesn't have. Um, a heck of a lot, and then texture count, which I guess so the textures loaded in there. So it's it's not showing a heck of a lot, but but it's a start. And then it also has a logging facility, and you know this could be something good, assuming that your card is supported, is that the logging will show, uh, you know, a timestamp, and it'll show how much VRAM is available and and free. So that may be a good way to correlate what you're doing in the game, and and to to see if oh, okay at this point in time I'm doing something and the machine lags if the the log matches that okay, maybe that is your problem, that you're you're very low or running out of VRAM. Right,
0: um, we, I, and I'm going to throw in here with X-Plane specifically, you can go, the, the interface for X-Plane is, it, it's a cross-platform game, so uh, it's a little clunky, uh, at least from a Mac standpoint, but you can go into settings and turn on and off all sorts of different texturing and, and graphics options, detail levels, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, you could turn a couple things on, and then go and look and see. Okay, you know, start playing the game again, and then look and see. Okay, yeah, you know, it's it's gone up or down. And of course, weather will have a different uh, a different impact on on various things. Is you know, if you've got rain, that's going to cause more uh, than just sunshine, and you know that sort of thing. So, but you found another utility, John, uh, for people that uh, have cards that may not be supported by this this other uh, this thing you found on Mac Update. And, and yours was not, right? Uh, yeah, the, the, the one on my uh, 2.0 gigahertz iMac. So uh, m- uh, the most recent aluminum iMac prior to the update yesterday. And okay, it was so, not. oh yeah,
1: that, nice update. Mm-hmm. Well, they got up to three gigs. That, mm-hmm. That's cool. So um, <laughs> um, I found something called OpenGL Drive Monitor. Who makes this? Apple makes it. But you may not find it um, on your machine, and and Dave and I were... uh, So I said, oh, well, you know, dude, look in developer applications graphics tools, or graphic tools, graphics tools. I don't think that's a typo, but anyways, you'll find it. If you've installed Xcode and the whole suite of tools there, now, now you, I guess...
0: It didn't migrate. Right. We, well, we were, I, I did. Uh, uh, you're all familiar with the the clipping and chop, not the clipping, but the chopping issues that we've been having with audio um, basically since I migrated to this Intel iMac. So earlier today, just a couple of hours ago, I did a total clean archive and install on this machine and, and the thought that, well, maybe I migrated something over from the uh, the dual G 4 uh, I did find a virtual PC disk image driver out there last week that kind of made me think, yeah, you know, there's some stuff lingering around. So I, I did that so far so good, uh, but I'm not convinced that it's totally solved the problem. In any event, it did not migrate the developer tools over. Those were sitting out in the previous systems uh, folder, but they—they they, it ran fine once I went in there and ran it from there.
1: Huh. OK, but as far as we can tell, this one works on, on all machines. And it's called OpenGL Drive Monitor. When you start it up, you're going to see a, um, you know, it's probably not going to show anything. You have to go to a Monitors menu, Driver, Monitors, and then, like on my G5 here, ATI Radeon 9700GL Driver. Um, The thing is, is that I saw different things on different machines here. I actually much preferred what I saw on my MacBook, which was that, so once you start up the utility and you pick your graphic adapter, if you then click on Parameters, it'll open up a little drawer or list that shows you all the parameters and the ones that you probably want are maybe current video memory in use and current free video memory now what's funny is that on this machine the NVIDIA chipset it has those two figures which are pretty much complementary. on my ATI Radeon I had some that were uh, AGP memory some that were which is uh, I think advanced graphics processing some high speed graphics current free video memory so I didn't see the same settings uh, so I mean it's obviously dependent on the driver and what they want to uh make available through OpenGL which in OpenGL is this in theory you know platform uh neutral way of getting at the the graphics horsepower or graphics features of a graphics card um but that does it, and I checked the numbers, did a cursory look, and, you know, it made sense. They added up to the total um, VRAM in the machine, and uh, it even shows you also, it shows you a graph over time from the driver. So that's another tool that you could use to, uh, over time, figure out what the heck is slowing your machine down. Is it? And, and actually, this tool has, I mean, it, it looks here like, you know, 40 or 50 different parameters here. So if you want to understand what your graphic card is doing, I think this utility will... To, would do
0: just about anything cool all right our first sponsor for this show is audio engine at com. they make two different kinds of speakers that you can use with your mac or with your stereo or just with your ipod uh they're standalone speakers the a2s audio engine a2s or as they call them the audio engine twos are for sale for 199 dollars us and they are uh small separate desktop speakers that uh, Pack a huge punch for their size. It, it's really quite something. Uh, and, uh, and they can really fill a room, but they're meant to be used just as a desk. And then they have the Audio Engine 5s, which uh, are available for 349 much bigger speakers, two drivers in each. And these actually have a power port on the back so you could plug uh, like an Airport Express into it. And they've also got a USB port on the top that's only used for charging, not for USB audio, but for charging. Uh, And so you could plug your iPod in, charge your iPod with these, and have totally self-contained sound. Again, Audio Engine speakers available from AudioEngineUSA.com. And with that, we'll move on to Garth and his question.
1: Hey, John and Dave, this is Dark in Atlanta. Happy sesquicentennial in your 150th show. Quick question. For some reason, my PDFs have stopped opening in preview, and now they're opening in Adobe, and I want to change that file association. Uh, I happen to be uh, able to do that in uh, Windows world, but on the Mac, I don't know how to change the file associations. If you can help me out, it would be really great. Love the show, and I don't want you to catch my email. So
0: I won't. Uh, okay, so, John, my, my thought on this is you go into the Finder, highlight mm-hmm. the file, and then go to the Get Info menu, and down uh, about halfway in the Get Info pane is a, a section called Open With, and there you can choose the application. It should come up with a list of applications that are on your system that advertise that they can open the type of file that it is you have selected. So you choose the uh, the, the application that you want, and then if it's not the default for that type of file, uh, you also have the option to click the Change All button, which makes it the default for any unassigned uh, uh, files of that type. So you could have, for let's say JPEGs, you could have Preview, uh, as the default, but you could set one of them to open in, say, Photoshop or Graphic Converter or, or something like that, but still not mess with your default. So that that's how we uh, that's how we change file type associations on the Mac. But John, you did you did a little bit of research, uh, so let, let's talk let's talk kind of about the digging in a little bit here. Yeah,
1: because you know it it, it got me. So the first thing that occurred to me is how did we get to this point? Okay. Of it, changing it and, and it, it could have been accidentally at, at, at some point somebody doing exactly what you said is clicking a file doing open saying oh changed all that sounds reasonable and then you're in this situation where it didn't do what it did before um, but it then led me down the path of thinking exactly you know how should you associate files with the applications that want to talk to them and we've seen a, a lot of things I mean throughout history probably the one of the first ones, and one of the ones that we still see now, is um, extensions. We see it in Unix and DOS and uh, CP. I mean, you know, all the operating systems. Little, you're, little you're talking thing. about
0: the the, the 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 period, and then the three characters after it, right?
1: Yes. Okay. So, so I'm calling that yeah. But but thanks for clearing that up. So yeah. So you have the name of the file, maybe some special characters, a period. So hopefully you don't want to have periods of special characters. That's a whole other story. But let's assume yes. we don't. So the period means, all right, what's before me is the important, the name of the file, what's after me, identifies who I am. And that, that can work. But then uh, I would say Apple and probably people before Apple, uh, you know, Next and, and, and other folks here. But they kind of got a little creative and they said, though Apple I think was was one of the mainstream companies that did this. They said, you know, that's kind of lame you know yeah. three letter extension why don't we why don't we make it elegant and embed the information in the file and we saw this in numerous apple operating systems where you had a file type and a creator both were four letter codes and they were uni- and if a certain data file had a certain file type and creator it knew which application should open it the only problem with that was it was kind of a Mac-only thing. So if you didn't also put an extension on the file, if you sent it, especially somebody on a PC, it would come with no three-letter extension at the end, and the PC would be like, huh? Right. Because most applications aren't smart enough to dig into the file and kind of figure out what what's going on there. Um, the thing Apple does now, and, and, and actually it's an excellent excellent article here, which I'm relying on, um, from uh, Ars Technica, and you said you know this fellow here, uh, John Siracusa. Yep. Um, But he wrote a very, very good explanation. This was back in Tiger, but it still applies. It's the whole file type, um, you know, debate here. And so Apple is, is, from what he says, which sounds valid, the the one way Apple, and and I think everybody, especially if you're going to deal with people on other platforms, is, yeah, it kind of looks, it doesn't look nice, but include the extension, especially through email and stuff like that. I've seen this problem with notes and other email clients is that if people email a file and it doesn't have, um, and, and the information doesn't come along with it um you know the person on the other end is not going to know what to do. Um, but now what they come up with, and, and this is where I'm going to lead to a program where you can dig in a little bit deeper if you're curious, though, be careful. Um, but Apple historically has used all these different things, but now what they have is something uh, new and exciting called a UTI, Uniform Type Identifier. And this is just a new way um, of a file the, the, through an XML-like hierarchy to describe to others, you know, what it can do and its types and its preferred application uh, and things like. You
0: have something, Dave? Well, I I don't think the UTI is buried within the file. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, from what I read on, in that article, I'm pretty sure the UTI is buried inside an application, and it talks about what files it can take, and that's how applications show up in that Open with. Uh, Dropdown there. I, I'm pretty sure that that's how it works. It's not bearing the UTI in the file. It's inside the uh, the the resource. Uh, you know, inside the package of the application based on based on a very quick read of of that uh, of that file. Uh, I
1: I think it's probably a little of both. I mean, it has okay. to be in the file based mm. on some of the experience we did. So so no, you bring up mm. a good point. Is that it has to be contained in both? The, yeah, because how is the data file going to know?
0: Well, yeah, so th- this is what's interesting because, yeah, a, a data file it is, it, you know, we're not back in the old days where we had a resource fork attached to a data file, right? That was a Mac OS 9 thing. We don't really have that in OS 10. Uh, but we, we, John and I did an interesting experiment here. Uh, I took a JPEG file and I stripped the extension from it. So it was just, uh, you know, a file name with no extension. And I sent it to him via Skype and... As soon as John got it, you double clicked it and it opened in graphic converter. So it and and you saw the, the image. So a graphic converter was smart enough to look at the file and figure out what type of image it was. But the OS somehow knew that this was an image file. And of course, I thought immediately, you know, being suspect, I thought, well, maybe the OS is just taking unassigned files and throwing them at graphic converter on John's machine for whatever reason. So I created a text file. And did the same thing, stripped the uh, the you know, the, the extension off of it, sent it to him, opened in text edit. So uh, I believe there are extended attributes is is what uh, what they're called that that go along with the file, assuming it's going to another Mac. And if it's not going to another Mac, they're simply ignored. Um, That said, I'm not sure how to see those extended attributes. I tried using bare bones super get info, but it uh, it didn't show me anything special on these two files. So, uh, this if any of you have any uh, any details here, this would be this would be a great uh, topic for follow up.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll dig a little more. The the we answered the question, but it just really got me thinking about this issue. Now, I did find, and we've talked about this before, Dave, but this specifically addresses the. UTIs, and that's a, a little prep pane called RC Default App, mm-hmm. um, from code. and it has a whole bunch of categories here, like Default Internet Applications. You know, if you launch a web page, does a which browser does it launch? So it keeps track of all of these. But what's interesting is that it keeps track of the UTIs. And you can see how the UTIs kind of cover extensions, MIME types, which is something that's. Uh, You'll see in the web world and in the email world, um, I think it originally stood for uh, Multimedia Internet Mail Extensions. Yeah, something that's like right. that. I think that's right. Uh, yikes. <laughs> but it was a, a two-part code that would identify what something was. In a, either, And your web browser does this underneath the covers here. If you ever look at the data stream, it'll say image, image. Um, you know, things like that, I- image slash JPEG and, and all that's, that stuff. But anyway, so this utility will let you look at the various UTIs on your machine and see what makes them up. I don't know if I touch them, but it, it's educational to understand what's going on under, underneath the covers that, that helps your computer determine what the heck it should launch.
0: Cool. Uh, all right. So uh, we'll, we'll follow up on that as, uh, as more information uh, is made available or as we find more stuff. Uh, Noah writes... I was listening to episode 148, and you were talking about virtual memory. I have a MacBook Pro 2.6 gigahertz with 4 gigs of RAM and an activity monitor. I noticed that my virtual memory was 76 gigs. Is this normal? At the time, I was running iWeb, iTunes, Safari, and Photoshop, and I had rebooted my machine just three hours prior. So, uh, yeah, the OS assigns virtual memory uh, in, in... In terms of the maximum that all the applications in the OS can address, it doesn't mean that that's how much swap space your computer is using on the disk. And that's really the most important thing. So in Activity Monitor, if you look at the bottom and go to the second tab, which is system memory, and I use tab because that's what Apple calls these. They don't look like tabs to me, but uh, the second button is system memory. And you want to look at... uh, The the category or the the listing there for swap used, if that's higher than zero bytes, it means that your machine has outgrown the amount of RAM that it has in it at that point in time and has started using uh, some, you know, some space on the disc, looking at the number of page outs, which is in leopard uh, in activity monitor, the the line above that, that's going to tell you how many times it's gone and written data out to the disc. So, watching the number of page outs if that number is constantly increasing it means you're constantly swapping to and from the disc uh if page out stays fairly static well you're probably right on the edge and and you may not need to worry about it so that's that's what you're looking for don't worry so much about vm size worry about swap used and that's uh that's going to be your friend Ah, very yeah. good and i'm very
1: happy because i'm looking about the g5 and page outs and swap use are both zero, yeah. as well as the MacBook. Well, I'm, I'm sure glad I got that extra memory. <laughs> yeah, it helps. I'm actually surprised on the G5 because they only have one and a half gigs on that. Wow. Which uh, actually, that's probably a good place to start, I think, for OS X. Yeah, I agree. I'd agree.
0: All right. Our uh, our second sponsor for this show, it's actually kind of funny because we have mentioned this product a couple of times so far, is Graphic Converter from Lemke Soft, and that's lemkesoft.com. Uh, available for $44.95 U.S., Graphic Converter is the Swiss army knife of graphics apps. It can open just about every graphics file I've ever thrown at it. Uh, It can create thumbnail libraries. It can convert files from one format to another and can even batch convert stuff. So if you've got a whole folder of let's say you got a folder of uh, TIFF files and I've had to do this for articles I've written and the TIFF files are all in RGB format. Well, you can have graphic converter convert them all to CMYK format or uh, convert them from TIFF to JPEG and you can have it resize them on the way and say I only want them to be a maximum of, you know, uh, 500 pixels wide. And boom, it it goes and does it. It it basically, it, it really is. They call it the Swiss Army knife of graphics apps, and I, I couldn't agree more. So, uh, John, I know you use uh, Graphic Converter from Lemke Soft, and, and I know we're both very happy to have them here as a, as a sponsor this week. It's an excellent, excellent application. Uh, available at LemKeysoft.com. Okay, so we have found... Uh, you know, we like to talk about cool stuff that we found, right, John? And, uh, and, and, of course, that's that's true of cool stuff that you folks have found. A couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe maybe more than that, uh, I was looking around, and I think I may have, I don't know if I asked on the show or on my blog or on Twitter, but somewhere I was looking for an application that would let me see and edit the UPnP uh, mappings of, of of my router. Now, we've talked about UPNP before. UPNP is Universal Plug and Play. And I believe that the, the terminology, that name was actually created by Microsoft, but it really has nothing to do with Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, really? yeah I, I think it was, but it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with them. Uh, oh,
1: but I've always, it bothers me because they always had plug and play mm-hmm. as kind of a... Yeah. you know selling point of of some of their operating systems. That's so right. yeah it, I was confused when I heard this because I almost dismissed it because I'm like oh Microsoft here we go again. Right.
0: No, so but, um, so you poorly UP, named, It is poorly named. So UPnP and of course Apple uh uses a different standard called NAT-PMP. Uh NAT being network address translation. That that's the protocol that lets you have one IP address uh Come into your router and then have it share that IP address among uh, your entire network. Uh, NAT PMP port mapping protocol. Well, there's an app from CodingMonkeys.de called PortMap, and what it does is it you launch it, it goes out on your local network, finds the router, and then supports either UPNP or NAT PMP, and first pulls down a list of everything that's already been assigned. And then allows you to edit it. Now, what do these two things do? Why would something be assigned? Well, the idea here is, let's say you have a game that launches on your computer and you're going to go out and play on the Internet. And people know, uh, you know, anybody else that's going to try and connect to you is going to connect on port. Just for example, 6458. Well, you could go to your router, log into the interface and say forward port 6458 to my computer. They don't want to have to make you do that. So they've created these protocols that do it automatically. They let the game say to the router, hi, I'm here. Please, if anyone uh, sends anything to us on port 6458, just go ahead and send that to me. I'm expecting it. And it registers itself. And then when the game quits, it goes back and says, "Okay, I'm all done. You can ignore those requests unless somebody else wants them. This is the first app I've ever seen on the Mac that allows you to see those and manage them directly from your Mac. And it, it does a pretty good job. Really. It was a proof of concept for them. They were working with a coding library that allows you to do this. And they basically put a wrapper around it, Uh, but it's a great wrapper. And they've also got the source code out there so that you can use it. If you're building your own apps and and want to have this functionality in there Uh, and they've documented it uh, fairly well to the point where I looked at it and said, yeah, I could implement that. Um, not that I'd know what else to do, but I could certainly implement that. <clears throat> so uh, it was a very, very cool thing to see and uh, very happy to have it. You know, I started thinking, OK, well, you know, if I had this on my Mac and was in a hotel, if the router there supported NAT PMP or UPNP, uh, I could see what what other people were doing and, and maybe even map ports to me and potentially make Skype work better or mm. you know, what have you. So you would so, just thinking. I was thinking, I know. It's good. It's good to think. So, that was uh that was one thing we found this week. The second uh cool thing, oh, you, know, you, you want on, to talk on, about it, this before we move on? It, it just concerns me though.
1: We'll, we'll, we'll share a little of our, you know, pre-show chatter here, but It seems to me that the protocol is very trusting and that somebody marches along saying, hey, you know, I'd really like you to map this outside port to this inside port. Can you do that for me?
0: Uh, Thanks. Very, very careful to note, though, that the protocol, based on what I understand, both of them only allow Mm -hmm. you to map to the machine that is uh, making the request. So you can't say take this outside port and map it to that machine. You say take this outside port and map it to me. And really, that stuff is being done constantly. Like right? when you request a web page, you may yeah. connect to the web server on port eighty, but you say send return traffic to me on port uh, you know six one two five four, and the NAT router automatically says okay, uh, let's you know transform this request and and right. do it this way. So it, it, a lot of that stuff is happening anyway. This is just doing it in a more a more uh, definitive yes. way.
1: Okay, I can still imagine oh, ways yeah. to abuse this just like, you know, arp storms and all these other fun mm-hmm. things that if somebody wanted to, you know, set up a lot of UPnP mappings that were uh, and there may be a way, you know, either flooding it or just whatever that that you could uh yeah, I won't think about it anymore.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I started to wonder, you know, OK, so let's say I'm in a hotel and the router happens to support one of these. Of course, it's possible that they just disabled the protocol entirely and, you know, you're sunk. But uh, let's say it it supports one of these. What? And maybe there's something in the protocol that will answer this question. But what's to stop me from saying, OK, go ahead and, and uh, send all traffic to me. So now somebody else goes out, tries to visit a Web page and I get their traffic back. Uh, you know, I mean that, that potentially could be used for nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's just a thought, but it's a cool app and I'm
1: really happy that it exists. Yeah. I mean, just starting it up, you know, I, I actually found it when you mentioned, General oh, John, have you looked at this? I'm like, yeah, I did. And it didn't even occur to me, but the one thing it does nicely is it shows you the outside IP address and the inside IP address. through Router. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool stuff. All right. So uh, we got a note from uh, Daniel Breek, I guess. I, I, I mean, Daniel, my apologies if, I, if I'm mispronouncing your last name. B-R-I-E-C-K. <clears throat> Daniel's a listener of this podcast and of others and has heard us all talk about wanting to mount network shares and lamenting the fact that Apple's facility for doing so is sort of pedantic and, and kind of clumsy and so Daniel started playing around with uh, AppleScript Apple script studio and created an application called network drive launcher. And I have not used this yet, but wanted to talk to you folks about it. Um, it basically allows you to create aliases that automatically launch network shares uh, in, in various different ways. Uh, so it totally bypasses having to go through the, uh, the, the, the whole Apple interface and, digging into network there you just launch this little thing connect to the network share and then you can save a shortcut to it so um nice to have this app and and pretty cool that it was inspired by some of the stuff we talked about here and and of course stuff talked about other podcasts as well so
1: it's a pretty cool app i like yeah i've noticed that yeah apple's implementation sometimes uh, i don't know it's kind of yeah, the network drives especially. Sometimes it's just very difficult to uh, – actually, I find the problems are more losing them when they, when they go away unexpectedly. Yes. The, the connecting part – Yeah, actually, actually, I had a problem with that where I, I'm, I'm fiddling with the, uh, the firewall between my two machines here because the two machines are on the same network, and I'm having problems getting from one to the other. It sees it. It shows it in the um, shared section on my machine. But if I click on it and try to connect to it, it doesn't, it, it just kind of sits there for a while and spins. I actually had to punch in the IP address manually and then I was able to get to it. So, um, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not pleased, <laughs> totally pleased with, <laughs> with the way that Apple's implementation works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to see if my throat will hold out. Uh, I've had this cold and then of course two podcasts today and oh, yes. various phone calls. I'm going to see if my throat's going to hold out. Cause I want to talk about, something that I did uh, last week. I had a big file to send to my brother, really big, many, many gigabytes, about five gigs. Um, And I I I started sending it over Skype and it was working fine, you know, using the full bandwidth of the of of the connection. And I thought, okay, well, Monday morning rolls around. I I need, you know, some upstream bandwidth to work so that I'm not totally soaking it and slowing everything down. And uh, I thought, gosh, you know, I'd hate to stop the transfer because I'm not sure if it's going to resume properly and and all that. Wouldn't it be great to be able to throttle the bandwidth? Very, very small amount of research turned up two articles, one at Mac OS 10 hints and then another one uh, at a a blog called etc. And we'll link to both of these about throttling the bandwidth. Now, since Tiger, we have had a, a, a facility in. OS10 built right into the kernel called dummynet. Dummynet was created so that people uh could test network different network uh or simulate different network environments. So you know, you may want to uh test your application or your 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 uh situation over What it would be like on a, a DSL connection or a dial up connection, let's say, or perhaps you want to test it on something where there's very high latency or packet loss. Well, the way dummy networks is first you decide what you want your dummy network to look like and you create what's called a pipe. And this is done with a single command line from the terminal. And you, you define the pipe, you say add pipe number one. And set the bandwidth to be X and set packet loss to be X. For me, I set it to be zero because I wasn't looking for that. And set latency to be, you know, uh, you know, whatever. And I, of course, set that to be zero as well. And then you assign traffic to it again. Just one more line at the terminal where you write. uh, Basically, I looked at the port that Skype was sending from and I said, okay, take all traffic from me on port X to any other IP address and assign that to the the pipe number one that I previously created, and boom, instantly Skype ratcheted right down, right in line. The cool thing is, you can then adjust the pipe up and down uh, so that you know at night when when I was done working, and we were done doing the podcast. I could just you know open it wide up, and right away uses more of the pipe. So totally dynamic. The best part is there's an app called WaterRoof, which we've talked about before. It's an app that lets you configure the uh, OS 10 firewall in many different ways. And WaterRoof has a, a GUI interface for doing exactly this. It's not entirely self-explanatory, which is why I wanted to go through that explanation first. So when you launch WaterRoof, you understand what you're doing and why. But uh, but certainly water roof is the way to do it. And then within water roof, you can actually go back and forth and, and adjust your uh, pipe basically on the fly. Very, very, very cool stuff. And uh, we'll send we'll, we'll post links to all three of those things. The Mac OS 10 hints article, the other et cetera article, which talks about this stuff at the very end of it. And then uh, water roof as well. So.
1: Wow. So this is the thing, because we, we've talked about this in the past is you would think that your network device, like your router, your switch, well, depending on which one you have, should or could do this. Mm-hmm. But as you you've observed, like I guess on some of the Linksys and uh, not to pick on them, but but you know any of the I would say low end consumer you know, grade under hundred dollar yeah consumer grade you know switches or routers, um, the, the code that claims to do this, uh, I've never tried it. Um, But but it sounds like you have. And and I guess it's, you know,
0: it doesn't always work. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's there's no real way, uh, at least from what I found in the the GUI for for the Linksys stuff uh, to say, take that computer and only give it a certain amount of bandwidth. Certainly you could go to the command line of any of these things and do that. Uh, But the problem that. I've found and I've found other reports of this is that the, the CPU, the processor built into those routers isn't manly enough to, to deal with that and be efficient about everything else that it's doing. And I'm I'm not sure why that is because it certainly didn't use a lot of CPU uh, juice on, on, on the Mac and it was almost unnoticeable. But, uh, but anytime I've tried to do quality of service on the, on my router here, it, it just hasn't worked right now there's two reasons for that. One is, you know, if there's some hardware limitations in the router that, that just make it not work efficiently. The other is my connection here, as with a lot of cable connections these days, I think, I think your connection with Optima online is similar to mine with Comcast now, uh, at least according to my brother, cause he's, he's on optimum uh, is that it's burstable. And in order to set up a true and by burstable, I mean that when you start a connection, Uh, to somewhere, start a download or start an upload. For the first minute or two, you might get speeds that are faster than those that are guaranteed to you. And then as the connection settles in, it ratchets that down to whatever you're promised. Okay. I think they're
1: shaping, right? I mean, they're saying, all right, first minute or two, well... We'll give you a, a little more, and then then we're going to back off. And and you you showed me this they, they do it very. It's kind of scary. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it'll it, start off at blazing, and then all all of a sudden, after a minute or two, it drops down, and it'll be there forever. But I guess it serves the needs of people who want you know quick and dirty. Give me the files real quick, and right. So it's, it sounds like a, a reasonable way of it, allocating bandwidth. It is.
0: It's great. The problem is if you want to do packet shaping yourself. The first thing you have to do is define an overall pipe. Remember, we talked about these pipes. So you define two pipes, one for the stuff coming in and one for the stuff going out. And to do packet shaping right, you have to define your pipes to be a little bit smaller, maybe 95 percent of what the actual bandwidth you have is. And the reason for that is once you start defining, okay, well, I want this type of data prioritized above this type of data inside my pipe. You need to be able to use one hundred percent of your dummy or virtual pipe without using one hundred percent of your actual pipe so that stuff can still move freely and you don 't have any uh, any latency or or any weird weird things so mm-hmm. uh, so that that's that 's why it doesn 't work with the burstable stuff right John because you're you 're pulling in it, you would have to set your pipe to be. 95% of the slowest your network could be, and you'd never get to take advantage of the stuff that's burstable. Does that make sense? Cool. Cool. All right. Uh, so, yeah, so that, that's why it doesn't really work. And I thought about doing some, you know, intelligent shaping and trying to figure out, okay, at what point does it ratchet back? And, you know, maybe, maybe there's a way to, to have the firewall kind of move along with that. But uh, my Linksys router won't do it, so I just left it alone. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, hmm. I I think you we're know. we're pretty. Uh, you know, I got a lead out rant. I was okay. At that. All right. Go.
1: Optimum. Did, did you get my my note about the notes I've been getting from them? Uh, about your TV service. Yeah. Apparently, there's something new coming down the road here. So Dave and I are both proud owners of uh, TiVo Series Three. Yeah. HD. Um, I'm getting notes from Cablevision now or Optimum Online saying, um, after this date, you know, because you got the cable card, I have two of them actually, uh, single channel versus multi-channel, I guess. But they're saying, well, if you got a cable card and we're, well, what they're doing, I think, is they're moving to something which is known as Switch Digital. Um, The problem is that there's a conflict here. The mandate that you're supposed to be offered a cable card and don't have to buy their crummy cable box um, said they should do this, and now they're sending notes saying, "Well, if you have a cable card, you
0: can not get this and that and that." Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna explain for the benefit of the listeners what's actually going on here. The cable companies are using one channel pipe for uh, various data, similar to an on-demand thing. You're basically setting your channel on demand. The problem with that, uh, or the, the 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 complication there is it requires two-way communication between you and the cable company. Instead of them just giving you everything and you tuning to whatever you want, they're giving you whatever you ask for, at least on these certain channels that you're talking about. So you need to sit, be able to send a request to them that says, yeah, give me channel X, and boom, it sends it back down. And it's right. a way
1: Which of- is why you don't get typically you know, pay-per-view and stuff like that, right. because it's a one-way mechanism. Currently, but there is. We accept accept that as cable card people because they they say if you have a cable card, you can't get you know pay per view, you can't get movies on demand, you can't get the interactive channel guide, blah. You can't get all these things, and I'm like, that's fine. I got the
0: TiVo. I don't need it. Right. But now, go on. Right. No. So now there's certain channels that you can't get because you don't have the ability to do this two way thing, and uh, and
1: I think there's channels that are my package now. That's what I don't get. And the one that's really bothering me, so a lot of them were like, you know, whatever HD and this HD. The one that's really bothering me is sci-fi. Right. It's a standard def channel, and it has Battlestar. <laughs> yeah. And that's the only thing I'm hooked on right now that I care about, but it's like, they say after, you know, May, whatever, late May, we're going to cut off your access to this, but you could buy our crummy box for, you can have our crummy box for a year, and then we're going to charge you, which is I thought was the whole point of the cable card was to eliminate the reliance on the crummy box that they try to push on you.
0: Right. And apparently there is some intermediary device that that they're going to be able to provide that will allow you to use the cable card and get access to this switch digital. Presumably, this thing's going to sit there and say, "Okay, they're asking for channel... Uh, You know, 812. So we need to send the request out to have, you know, channel 812 come in on whatever pipe it is. And boom, you're there. So I I think it'll be a transparent solution once that magic box is available.
1: Yeah. And I sent that to you. But actually, TiVo has been a lot more forthcoming with some of the cable companies. Of course. And I got to, you know, wag my finger at some of the cable companies because I've got multiple letters saying, you want our box, you want our box, you want our box. It's
0: like, no, I don't. No, that's the last thing I want. I had that box. I spent $1,000 to get rid of it. It was the best $1,000 I ever spent.
1: (sighs) Are we done here? Oh, boy. That was a macro rant. Not a mini rant. Sorry. But...
0: (laughs) We can thank Michael Johnston of iPhoneAlley.com for converting this show into AAC. He's got a, actually a podcast. I listened to the first episode of it, and, and I, it, it, it was fantastic. Uh, I listened to it in the car last night on the way home from from band rehearsals. So if you're into the iPhone, go check this uh, podcast out at iPhoneAlley.com. Cashfly is providing all the bandwidth for you to download this show, both in MP3 and AAC. And the podcast marketplace includes, of course, AudioEngineUSA.com with their A2 and A5 desktop speakers, BB Edit from Barebones Software at Barebones.com, PDF Pen from Smile On My Mac at SmileOnMyMac.com, and Harman-ETravel.com for all your travel needs. The Backbeat Media Podcast Network is where you go to sponsor this show, and uh, we love your comments. We love to hear from you. 206 666 Geek, which is four three three five. Is that right, John? I don't know Okay it is I'm looking here Yeah 206-666-geek You can call in uh, You can email to Feedback at com Or Skype us At MacGeekGab. And uh, I think that gets uh, That gets us Gets everything Taken care of But go Go do those iTunes comments We're at like 160 something now I'd love to be at 200 uh, In the next Mm. couple of weeks That'd be cool So Do us a favor Please We'd, We'd appreciate it And uh, stay subscribed. We love that. Happy number 150, John. Happy, happy. (laughs) And don't get caught.
2: Made up.